Well, good afternoon and welcome to Real People OC. I'm your host, Kimberly Martin, and I bet not very many people knew that March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Well, I bet you're glad I didn't do a four-part series on this topic. <laughs> not not all that many people are interested in talking about our backsides, but this is a really important topic. And as I am approaching the age where uh, regular screening is starting to become of interest to people my age, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to share this topic with you. So when a group of physicians reached out to me and wanted to talk about this exact subject and present it to you, I thought we better go ahead and do that. Dr. Mark McConney, our guest for today, is the founder of LA Digestive Health and Wellness, and he centers his principles and practice on the passion for promoting overall health and well-being, but proper digestion is really a key to that. Preventive care is essential and proper nutrition, and he's a firm believer of practicing what he preaches. So we're going to hear all about a wide range of insights to the gastrointestinal system and also colon cancer prevention and what some of the newer technologies are so that we can first debunk any myths that we have carrying around in our minds, but also to encourage us to do this really, really important screening. Well, so welcome Dr. Mark McConney from Lapeer Surgery Center to talk to us about the ins and the outs of Colon Cancer Awareness Month. No pun intended, of course. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Kimberly. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being on the air. Well, okay, this is a big topic. I remember it was it was formative for me. I was pretty young when Katie Couric lost her very young husband. And I just that was just devastating. And she was so strong and bold in that she gave everybody pretty much a tour of what was happening uh, when she had her colonoscopy. It was such an eye-opener of how preventable this particular disease can be. And so I'm really happy to be doing my part, and certainly I'm sure you are to be doing your part in your practice to help people realize simple steps, folks. We've got to know what they are and debunk some of the myths so we can we can have a clean bill of health. Absolutely. It's one of the most important things I do as, as, part, as being a gastroenterologist is uh, colon cancer awareness and screening and prevention. Okay. So, well, let's take us back to the, um, like what we used to do and now where we're at with our, with medical science and how we're able to have better outcomes for patients. So yeah, colon cancer has uh, really evolved. Screening has evolved uh, over the years. Yeah. Uh, as as the invention of the colonoscopy technique uh, developed over the past uh, several decades, and newer techniques which are non-invasive have also been developed to help uh, screen the whole population. Because as you can imagine, there really aren't uh, enough uh, physicians to really do colonoscopies uh, to prevent this cancer itself. And so, as time has gone, we've developed new ways to to prevent this and earlier detection techniques, which would prompt us to do a colonoscopy in somebody who's higher than average risk based on their testing. Okay, so well, why don't we talk about that notion of risk for a minute? Because I think maybe that is one of the areas where people sort of eliminate themselves from the discussion. So let's talk about risk. Who is at risk? Right, so there are several risk factors. Uh, some of them are factors that we uh, as individuals can, can help modify and some of them are based on our genetics. So uh, some of the risk factors that can change, uh, there are several lifestyle-related factors. Um, there are links between diet, weight, and exercise, as well as colon cancer risk, and these are some of the strongest types for any type of cancer. For example, one is being, being overweight or obese. As somebody who's overweight, 
or obese, uh, their risk of developing and dying from colorectal cancer is much higher. Um, being overweight raises the risk both in men and women, uh, but the link does seem to be stronger in men. Another, um, another risk factor for this condition is uh, physical inactivity. Uh, typically, you know, we recommend people exercise for many different reasons for cardiovascular uh, health, but also for colon cancer risk as well. Um, being more active, and <clears throat> we don't know the actual way that it causes that, but it, it may be other factors as well. They tend to eat better, people who have a more active lifestyle, because uh, there are certain types of diet uh, which do cause uh, a higher chance of developing colorectal cancer. For example, uh, diets that are high in red meats, such as beef, uh, pork, lamb, or liver, and processed meats um, such as hot dogs and some of the luncheon meats, those also raise the colorectal cancer risk. Um, cooking meats at very high temperatures, such as frying or boiling or grilling, creates chemicals that might cause your cancer risk. Uh, it's not really clear how these might increase the risk, but we know that there are some associations. Uh, on the on the flip side, uh, diets that are high in vegetables, fruits, and whole grains have actually been linked to a lower risk of colorectal cancer. Uh, fiber supplements have not been shown to help, however. So really it's more the natural uh, fibers and, and types of foods and uh, vegetables and grains that have uh, been shown. Uh, it's not really clear, though, if there are other dietary components, such as certain types of fats, uh, which affect colorectal cancer risk or, uh, at this time. Um, other risk factors are smoking. Uh, people who have smoked for a long time are more likely than non-smokers to develop and die from colorectal cancer. Uh, smoking is a well-known cause of lung cancer. Uh, but it's also linked to other uh, cancers as well, um, such as uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, if you want, if you smoke and you want to know more about quitting it, there are a lot of uh, availabilities and options and resources available out there. For quitting um, smoking. For quitting smoking, yes. Uh, which has uh, quitting smoking has a lot of health benefits. Uh, in addition to that, is colorectal cancer as well. Um, another one, actually, that a lot of people don't know is heavy alcohol use. Um, colorectal cancer has been linked to, to uh, heavy alcohol use and limiting alcohol. Uh, to actually no more than two drinks per day for men and one drink a day for women has many health benefits, including the lowering the risk of colorectal cancer as well. Wow. Those are some of the more lifestyle uh, uh, risk factors that people can change. And, of course, there are some other colorectal cancer risk factors uh, that we can't change. Uh, some people. of those being age. So younger adults, they certainly can develop colorectal cancer, uh, and we do see that in some of the younger population, people in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, but usually it's the young, uh, it's older adults, especially after turning age 50. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, part of the screening guidelines, uh, it is recommended that uh, the whole adult population above the age of 50 do do obtain their colorectal cancer screening. Um, another one, which is a high risk factor, is a personal history of colorectal polyps or a history of colorectal cancer, as one might imagine. Um, when we do these colonoscopies and we remove polyps, you know, we send the tissue to pathology which means that they basically look at it under the microscope and they look at the features of the cells uh, of these uh, abnormal tissue or polyps. Um, and people who have adenomas, which are precancerous lesions, are at risk for developing colorectal cancer. And in fact, in the um, guidelines that we use by our societies, the American College of Gastroenterology and the American Gastroenterological Soci um, Association, we have uh, recommendations based on the number of polyps, uh, the size of the polyps, the locations of the polyps, and the, of course the pathology, uh, when we would recommend for somebody to come back for their repeat surveillance colonoscopy. Um, and the personal history of inflammatory bowel disease. Inflammatory bowel disease is a condition, two different types of conditions. One of them is called ulcerative colitis, 
Uh, the other one's called Crohn's disease. Uh, these also uh, do raise the risk of colorectal cancer uh, in those individuals, um, which uh, is a complicated mechanism based on ongoing inflammation, but just to be aware that these uh, patients do have a higher risk of uh, colorectal cancer. Okay, so... Well, it seems to me that the big buzzword right now out there in nutritional circles and health and wellness circles is inflammation. Can we talk a little yes. bit about that? So inflammation, it's a very a nonspecific vague term, but basically what inflammation means is that there's just some sort of ongoing injury that's causing uh, the colon to be irritated or inflamed. And so this ongoing inflammation has a very complicated cascade of different types of cells uh, that cause reactions in the lining of the colon. And over time, there's a risk that these tissue cells can become abnormal or what we call uh, dysplastic or dysplasia, which means abnormal tissue cells. And those have a risk of transforming into cancer over time to malignancies. Okay. So, but are you a big believer? I mean, is, is it the prevailing wisdom among doctors as well as us common folk that inflammation is a key uh, marker to be looked at for individuals? Inflammation is one. Um, there are certain, certainly other factors as well, um, such as genetic predispositions and, and some of the other uh, things we mentioned about uh, diet and lifestyle and, and risk factors as well. I, I do believe that it's important, uh, I, but I don't think it's necessarily the, the only answer. Okay. All right. Well, so let me just pause for a second and say, if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And I have with us today a gastrointestinal physician, Dr. Makani from Lapeer Surgery Center. And he's here to talk to us about Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And well, you know, you've uh, one of the things you've been doing is lumping in colorectal cancer is it just automatically that they're pretty much caused from the same sources, or are they really different when you're diagnosing and treating? Um, well, the diagnosis is very similar. Uh, basically, the rectum is the lowest part of the colon, which which leads uh, to the um, you know to the end of the colon for for people when they uh, go to the bathroom. Uh, the The difference is there are some differences in their treatment options based on the location of where the rectum is. It's it's a lot lower, and so the types of surgeries that some people may need to have, you know, for cure as well as uh, certain types of radiation or chemotherapy do vary based on uh, the location of where uh, the cancer is diagnosed, depending on where it's higher in the colon or lower uh, in the rectum. So there are, yes, some differences. Okay. So let me ask you, you know, it seems to me that if we wanted to apply any kind of alternative health approach, our colon would be the easiest one to get to because it's basically wide open waiting for us to give input to it in the way of food and nutrition. Is, is there some wisdom or some, you know, gathering interest in what we can do to put inside to help, um, I don't know, bathe, so to speak, the inner lining of our intestines? And our well, colon? certainly, yes. Um, there are certain, you know, risk factors, as we mentioned, the, the types of uh, processed meats that are higher in nitrites is one that causes more, um, Inflammation and irritation to the lining of the colon, that's been shown to have a higher risk of developing inflammation and colorectal cancer. Uh, diets that are high in red meats, uh, cooking at very high temperatures, um, which causes the chemicals that raise the cancer risk. Um, and then conversely, the diets that are higher in fruits and vegetables and whole grains uh, have been linked to the lower risks of developing colorectal cancer. Certainly there are a lot of uh, diet and lifestyle modifications that can help reduce somebody's chance of developing uh, colon polyps or cancer. 
Okay, so let me ask you this. There's another big trend in selling the selling of cleansing products, uh, bowel right. cleansing, intestinal cleansing. What, what say you of those types of products, and how are doctors generally viewing those or using those in the treatment of patients? So, yeah, there has been a, a lot of um, publicity for that, and a lot of patients will come see us and tell us, well, you know, I've been doing enemas or I've been taking these colon cleansing kits thinking that they're necessarily helping. Uh, there really hasn't been much evidence to prove that uh, colon cleansing decreases the risk of forming polyps or decreases the risk of colorectal cancer. Uh, so usually I tell my patients uh, that, you know, if their bowel regimen, if they're more constipated and they're not going to the bathroom regularly, we can put them on, you know, daily stool softeners in addition to increasing their water intake and increasing the fiber in their diet. Uh, but I don't usually recommend my patients to take colon cleansing or to use enemas just for the uh, for the uh, possibility of trying to decrease their risks of forming polyps or, or colorectal cancer prevention. Well, it might be interesting to give a little bit of an anatomy um, description because I think sometimes, well, I know there's, maybe you can just walk us through the intestinal tract a little bit. Sure, um, absolutely. A, a lot of people, I think if they think they're giving an enema, they're, they're, they're reaching their insides, <laughs> but it right. might be interesting to know just how little they've gone in. Um, yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I can give you the anatomy. Actually, just going real briefly from from the from the mouth uh, to the anus. So from the mouth, we go into the oropharynx, which is the back of the throat, and then we have the esophagus, which is the food pipe when we eat food that transmits the food from the mouth uh, into the stomach. Then we have the stomach which then leads into the small intestines. There are three parts of the small intestine. The first part is called the duodenum, uh, which we can reach usually with our standard uh, upper endoscopies. Then the middle parts of the intestines include the uh, jejunum and the ileum. And the small intestine itself is approximately, depending on the person, 20 to 25 feet in length. And there's also the colon then, which leads from the terminal ileum into the colon itself. Uh, the colon itself is, is several feet long, um, and when we do a colonoscopy, we basically are going in from the anus. We're looking at the rectum, we're looking at the entire colon, and we're also sometimes going into the lowest part of the small intestines called the terminal ileum, which is the lowest part of the small intestines. Typically, uh, when somebody uses uh, a colon cleanser from the bottom, such as an enema, that usually goes to the lower part of the colon, which is usually the rectum and the sigmoid and a small part of the descending colon. Uh, the colon itself does have several parts. So really uh, an enema or one of those um, suppositories that are uh, given from below really only reach probably about a third of the colon. So there's certainly a certain uh, a bigger area of the colon that isn't being reached by the uh, colon cleansing product there. Okay, so what about hydrocolon therapy or commonly known as a colonic? Does that go further than those are also very very similar as well. Some some of those colonics they, they tend to ha use more pressure and so they can get a little bit higher. Uh, but the data as to whether they actually get throughout the whole colon, uh, I believe, is limited. So still, they they're not getting as clean of a uh, prep as as they might be thinking. Uh, most people who use those. So well, as a as a casual observer of some of these modalities, I'm kind of curious. If you prepare a client to go in and have a colonoscopy, whatever the solution is or the format that you have them drink, in, at the end, gives them a clean colon for you, the, the physician, to look at. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, all of these patients uh, you know, who do have colon cancer screening, 
or colonoscopies, they do take a bowel prep. It's an oral solution, and there are different types. Uh, basically, the premise behind these uh, bowel preps is that there's a, a set of non-absorbable electrolytes so that when somebody ingests them, they're not absorbed into the intestines, and they uh, lead to uh, excess secretion of fluid uh, into the bowel so that we can, we can clean the, uh, the stool so that we can have an adequate examination. Uh, because I always remind my patients, one of the most important parts uh, of a colonoscopy is to have a good, uh, clean colon prep. Uh, because as we go in with our cameras, if there's a lot of stool there, then a lot of smaller polyps can be missed. Uh, and usually when we recommend a colonoscopy, let's say it's starting at age 50, in somebody who doesn't have risk factors for colon cancer, it's very important that their colon is clean uh, so that when I do their colonoscopy, uh, at the end of the procedure, if they have no polyps, I can tell them in confidence I was able to see all of the folds of the colon, everything looked good, and I can tell them with a high degree of confidence that they can have their col repeat colonoscopy 10 years later uh, without much concern for developing an interval colon polyp or cancer. And that's really where uh, us as a community as gastroenterologists, we are trying to do the best we can to decrease uh, rates of interval cancers between colonoscopies. Oh, okay. So um, so when a, a hydrocolon therapist or somebody says you have old poop that's been in there for years, that's probably not likely, or is, is it possible? It is not possible, no. Somebody who, I, I, I've seen all different sorts of people with chronic constipation and people who may go to the bathroom only once every two or three weeks, and certainly things are very slow in these individuals, and they have um, a more complex mechanism, which we won't uh, get into as to why they're not going to the bathroom regularly, uh, but for for their stool to be in there for years is, is really not something that's possible. Um, I think that's really more of a myth. Uh, they, they, may, they may be trying to explain to them that things are moving very slowly and there's a lot of uh, things that need to be cleansed, but it's really not there for years. You're not stuck with a stomach full or a colon full of speckle, in other words. <laughs> it empties no. out like a normal. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because yes, it, it it's that it does seem like misinformation, and it does seem like yes. that would motivate somebody to perform a procedure that maybe isn't healthy for you. It doesn't sound like yes. it would be good to put pressure inside your body, water pressure, but... Um, right, and I can tell you, me personally, I, I, I would never have a colonic uh, unless it's really indicated or necessary. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hype about that. Uh, but there's really no data or evidence to support uh, its use for maintaining healthy bowel regularity uh, or for prevention of any sort of uh, colon cancer polyps uh, or um, any, any other abnormalities or inflammation in the colon. Okay. All right. Well, good. So, okay, let's, let's talk about when someone should screen. You might have said that in the beginning, but I want to repeat that. When should one have their first colonoscopy? What age? Absolutely. So, so in the average risk patient, so, you know, meaning that somebody who does not have a family history of colon cancer, doesn't have a family history of colon polyps, and is otherwise asymptomatic, meaning that they feel well, uh, they have normal bowel movements, um, they, are not, they don't have blood in their stool, and they're doing well, uh, just for, as part of their routine health maintenance screening, we recommend age 50. Uh, just like uh, a woman who's recommended um, at age 40 to get her mammogram, and uh, men are recommended to get their prostate exam started at age 50, uh, colon cancer screening, such as via colonoscopy, uh, is also recommended at age 50. Uh, that being said, uh, there are other modalities in addition uh, to colonoscopy uh, that can be uh, colon cancer screening techniques. Uh, as I mentioned previously, um, with the whole population burden, uh, it's, it can be somewhat difficult or limited to try to get every single person 
uh, screened with a colonoscopy starting at age 50. Thus, we do have other uh, non-invasive uh, testing as well, which can sometimes help uh, to screen the population on a, on a larger level. Okay. Well, so, and there's some, you know, online solutions to that. I, I know that's one of the things we wanted to address were what are some of the risks associated with or relying on some of the simple in-store um, at-home yes. screening products. Can we talk about that? Yes. Uh, you know, a lot of these products, um, they don't have much detail if you read their packaging as to uh, how they were actually come to be approved. And a lot of them are not FDA approved. Um, and it's very hard. I, I compare it to other types of um, over-the-counter remedies such as uh, colonics or such as probiotics where a lot of these don't actually have the necessary testing uh, by the FDA. And so um, they have a higher rate of uh, false negatives, meaning that somebody could take the test and use it uh, and, tell, and tell them that it's negative and, and then the person feels, okay, well, you know, I, I did this home test. I feel good. I have no symptoms. It's negative and that's that. So uh, I, I just caution uh, people who go buy these over-the-counter uh, home testing kits and to really do their due diligence to find out if they are going to get one, what is the evidence behind it, has it been evaluated by the FDA. Um, generally, though, I, I discourage against using the, those sort of home uh, products because of the risk of, of missing. Uh, they have a higher uh, chance of um, uh, false, false negatives. Okay. All right. So basically what somebody's doing is they are providing a stool sample. They're smearing it onto something and sending it to somebody to review. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, we do have some ones that are exactly that, that have been approved by the FDA. Uh, for example, there's one called Cologuard, uh, which actually just recently came out in 2014. Uh, that was actually approved by the FDA. There was actually a, an article uh, back in August of 2014, which they approved the first non-invasive DNA screening cancer test uh, for colorectal cancer. And basically, that's also a, a kit which basically it uses advanced tool DNA technology and it finds elevated levels of altered DNA uh, or hemoglobin in these abnormal cells, which can, which can be associated with cancer or precancer. Again, you know, it is not a perfect test, uh, but it is a test which can at least prompt somebody to say, to say that there's something that's some, there, there could be something there, such as a polyp or, or a, a mass lesion which would then prompt, you know, a visit by a, a gastroenterologist and consideration of colonoscopy to determine and make sure that uh, everything is okay. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> I would imagine if somebody is nearing the age of 50 and they're thinking about getting a colonoscopy, what's their first step? Do they go to a specialist or do they have to complain uh, to their family doctor? There's that... actually been, right, there's actually been a lot of data about that recently. Um, so um, now a lot of different... Um, Communities are starting to also look into um, colon cancer screening programs where the primary physician, the family physician, or the internal medicine physician can actually refer them for a colonoscopy uh, without necessarily seeing the gastroenterologist on, uh, on the, for the first time like, until the day of the procedure. Um, that has, can be good because it helps uh, screen the population on a, on a larger level. Um, because a lot of times uh, patients uh, don't have as much access to care or they, they won't be able to show up for the office visit. So sometimes that can help uh, um, motivate people to get a screen. Uh, personally, I, I still believe it's good to see the gastroenterologist 
uh, prior to having uh, the colonoscopy for several reasons. Uh, one, I think it's important for the gastroenterologist to go through their history to find out are they having any symptoms, do they have a family history, are there other things uh, that, war- that are more alarm triggers uh, that could prompt somebody to, to be higher on the list. Uh, another reason why is that I, I feel that one of the most important things in doing a colonoscopy is for the patient to understand why we're doing it, but to also be very informed about the preparation that's involved. Because uh, a lot of times, if patients aren't aware of the types of diets they need to have prior to having their procedure, as well as the, the liquid that they have on the day before, and to drink the bowel preparation the correct way, uh, it, they end up showing up for the procedure with an inadequate prep, and then it's not um, as useful of a test because, of course, as we mentioned, we could miss smaller polyps or lesions. Uh, and we wouldn't be able to tell people in as much confidence that, that there's uh, nothing uh, significant um, arising. Well, what percentage of the time does that actually happen where they didn't prep properly? Uh, well, I can tell you in my practice, uh, I have a pretty high rate of success uh, because I've been very uh, diligent about educating my patients. I take my time. I answer all the questions. Um, I've prepared my own uh, custom bowel preparation, uh, and I go through it with them the day of the office visit prior to scheduling them for their colonoscopy so that they're really aware of um, why we're doing it and how important it is to have a good preparation. So um, I can speak for myself and some of my colleagues that, you know, we, we, we take the extra time to make sure that people are informed about the prep and why uh, it's so important to have it done for a good prep. Is it, would it be okay to ask you to walk us through some of the aspects of that prep? Uh, absolutely. So uh, one of the biggest things that I usually tell uh, people is that for the five days before uh, leading up to the uh, procedure, uh, we want them to be on a low-fiber diet. Uh, and the reason we like uh, patients on a low-fiber diet is because uh, a lot of times uh, patients um, may have altered bowel preparations. They may not be going to the bathroom every day. And so we want to make sure that when they're drinking the prep, uh, it's easier to clean them out if they're on a lower fiber diet. Those things are easier to clear uh, during the preparation uh, compared to uh, somebody else. Um, the other thing we always recommend to patients is uh, the day before they need to be on a clear liquid diet. Uh, clear liquid diet it means any liquid that's clear in the light. So, for example, apple juice is a clear liquid. Um, black coffee or black tea are clear liquids. Uh, chicken broth or vegetable broth without the actual contents uh, are clear liquid. Jello is a clear liquid. Uh, Gatorade is a clear liquid. Uh, so those are uh, what we tell patients to be on the day before. Um, we also um, discuss with them uh, about avoiding uh, fiber supplements uh, as, as part of the low-fiber diet. So a lot of times patients are taking uh, Citrusel or Metamucil uh, and a, a lot of these uh, uh, over-the-counter fiber supplements, and so we want them to avoid these for the several days uh, leading up to the procedure because those bulk up the stools, and, and they may help uh, in general for maintaining regularity, but for bowel preparation in itself, um, it's not very helpful. Uh, other things we tell patients is to avoid uh, certain food products that may have seeds in them uh, because those also make it more difficult to clean the colon. Uh, some examples include popcorn, uh, corn, um, certain fruits such as raspberries or strawberries or cucumbers or tomatoes uh, or poppy seeds that have seeds in them, uh, certain types of nuts, um, whole grains such as multigrain bread, um, oatmeal, granola, uh, rice, uh, those uh, types of uh, foods. And then what we do, the most important thing is that there's been a lot of evidence uh, in the colonoscopy bowel preparation that a split-dose prep, meaning that 
you drink part of the, the bowel prep the day before, and the second half closer to the procedure makes for a cleaner exam. Um, so a lot of times, typically, depending on when the, the person is having their procedure, we tell them to, to drink the second half of the bowel preparation closer to the procedure. So, for example, if I had somebody who's coming in for an early morning 7 a.m. procedure, uh, I may tell them to drink the first half the day before around 5 or 6 p.m. and the second half maybe around 10 or 11 p.m. at night because they're having an early morning procedure. However, if they're having a 12 o'clock or afternoon procedure, uh, then we'll tell them to drink the first prep uh, half at 6 p.m. the night before and then the second half early in the morning, such as 7 or 8 a.m. the day of the procedure so that they can uh, be cleaner um, when we do our uh, colonoscopy. Can we talk about what's in the prep solution? Uh, a lot of what's inside the bowel prep solutions uh, varies depending on the, t- the type. So um, usually when I see the patient for their uh, evaluation, uh, I ask them a lot about their bowel habits uh, because I believe um, their bowel habits will dictate what sort of uh, colonoscopy prep we'll use. Um, for example, um, one of the lower volume bowel preps that we use is called SUPREP. Um, and that includes uh, sodium sulfate, uh, potassium sulfate, as well as magnesium sulfate. Uh, it is really the, the magnesium, uh, which is a, a laxative, and there are a lot of different mag- magnesium-based laxatives that people use uh, on and off uh, to maintain regularity. Um, another lower-volume prep is, is called Prepopic, which has a, a variation, um, and then there are bigger preps, such as a mobile prep or Go Lightly, uh, that are a lot more to drink. Um, and basically, the bottom line with all these bowel preps is that they, they, te- they have a set of non-absorbable electrolytes, meaning that they're not absorbed in the intestine, and so they help secrete uh, fluid by the colon or the small intestines into the bowels so that we can get an adequate um, bowel preparation. That's and we amazing. always educate patients that it's very important, especially with the lower volume preps, that they drink enough of other liquids, such as uh, apple juice and Gatorade and um, jello things uh, because they need to be adequately hydrated uh, to make sure that they have a clean bowel prep because the prep itself that the solution that they're drinking is a small solution uh, but if they're not drinking enough liquid and they're not hydrated enough then they won't have a good bowel cleansing for the procedure and it's pulling um, pulling liquid from your body anyway right exactly and in addition to that some people they in addition to that they need to be hydrated and drink enough other liquids anyway to make sure that things are flushed out Okay, so there was actually a um, a bowel preparation which is actually off the market now. It was called Fleet Phosphasoda, and this was a it was a one ounce um, bowel preparation that people would drink and then drink a, a little bit of liquids after it. And it actually did a good job of cleaning people. The reason why it was taken off the market was because it was so concentrated to help with the bowel preparation that it actually had some electrolyte abnormalities and would cause uh, some people to end up with kidney failure. Oh, wow. um, and that was a concern for it. So that was taken off the market years back. Um, that is one of the other concerns. So if, if patients have uh, an alteration of their kidney function, then we're certainly more careful in, in terms of the type of bowel preparation we give them because we don't want to uh, cause any electrolyte disturbances in their body uh, or to cause uh, overwhelming uh, dehydration or stress on the kidneys. So this uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, or the Go Lightly, or whichever one you decide to use, it's a small yeah. quantity. It, they don't have to, because I remember somebody having to mix a huge gallon of something and get through that in the whole day. Yeah. And, and we actually still awful. have those. Yeah, we still have that. The Go Lightly is what that one is called. Um, and we do still have that. 
um, and we use, we tend to use that still on uh, on some patients. You know, one we tend to use that uh, more in patients who are in the hospital. Uh, I tend to use that more uh, in patients who have some kidney problems because there's less risks of causing electrolyte disturbances. Um, and a lot of it also um, comes down to cost as well. Uh, you know, sometimes in the new healthcare reform. Uh, if patients uh, are willing to pay a little extra money out of pocket, we can usually get them covered for the lower uh, volume preps, uh, barring any of those contraindications we talked about. You know, somebody who doesn't have a history of constipation, somebody um, who doesn't have kidney disturbances, uh, um, then, I, then, then they're usually a good candidate for the lower volume preps. Uh, I do give the choice to the patients, uh, but usually they tend to be um, – uh, very excited about it because they they taste a lot better. They're a lot less to drink, uh, and really the the experience of having a colonoscopy is really a lot more pleasant uh, than than it used to be years back. <laughs> okay, well I'm sure there's a lot of people that would debate that with you. Um, so, well if you're just tuning in, this is Kimberly Martin, and I'm your host for Real People OC, and we air each and every Thursdays from four to five. And I am delighted to have with me Dr. Mark McConney with the Lapeer Surgery Center. He's a gastrointestinal physician. Um, should I be calling you a gastrointestinal surgeon? Oh, you could call me a gastroenterologist. Gastroenterologist, okay. And um, GI doctor is what was sent over yes, for me. Yes, GI is a, right, a much easier term. Yes, but um, and we are talking about the colonoscopy, and it's it's I almost said breast cancer awareness month. It's colon cancer awareness month for March. And so I'm doing my part to share some information with you, hopefully by giving a really detailed discussion about the colonoscopy procedure, we can um, dispel any fears you might have, or we might actually be creating some, who knows. But uh, certainly we're going to get up to the date information on new colonoscopy procedures. It, you know, you just said it's much better now, or you even, I think you used the word pleasant. Um, but I'm not sure anybody would think about this procedure in any way as being pleasant. Can we talk about um, the way it used to be and how it is now that might have changed some of that for the patient experience? Yes, I, th I think one of the biggest uh, changes actually is the bowel preparation itself. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, we do still have the uh, Go Lightly, which is the lar l larger volume. It's four liters. Uh, it's a very large uh, bottle of people to drink. Uh, a lot of times it causes people uh, to feel nauseated. Um, a, a lot of times I've had I've had certain situations where uh, insurance didn't cover uh, the lower volume preps or the person didn't want to pay a little extra for financial reasons, which is understandable. And so they were they needed to take uh, the higher volume prep. Uh, and for a lot of people, it's it's a big stress on the body. It's it's a very salty tasting solution. Almost I. I Kind of compared to drinking ocean water, um, which if you if anybody's ever drank ocean water by accident, you know when they were swimming in the ocean, we, we know how unpleasant that is. Um, and so for a lot of people, it can cause nausea. It makes the experience uh, much more difficult. Um, so a lot of times, it's the bowel preparation which is involved in the unpleasantness uh, of the uh, procedure itself. Uh, the procedure can be done in two ways. Um, usually, a colonoscopy is done either under conscious sedation or under uh, monitored anesthesia care, which we abbreviate as MAC, M-A-C. Uh, the difference uh, to deciding who gets conscious sedation versus monitored anesthesia care uh, also depends on the person, uh, their other medical issues, uh, and as well as insurance coverage as well. Okay. For example, somebody who's a little bit older and might have some medical issues such as some heart disease or some lung disease, uh, 
we do feel usually it's safer to have it done under monitored anesthesia care. Uh, the reason why is that there's an anesthesiologist there who's um, giving them some sedation where they're keeping an eye on their breathing and their heart rate, and it's a much safer exam. Uh, some of the people who are a little bit healthier um, and uh, are more uh, aware of costs and would like to have it with conscious sedation, we use two different medicines as a gastroenterologist, uh, something called fentanyl, which is a type of opiate medication, and another one called Versed or midazolam, which is a benzodiazepine, uh, that being similar to the um, anxiolytic medication, such as um, Xanax and other things that uh, some people use as, as an outpatient. But really the combination of the fentanyl and the Versed uh, produces the, the sedation where People may be somewhat awake, but they're in a twilight phase and they don't really remember the procedure uh, because of some of the uh, amnestic effects uh, of the Versed and then the analgesic, which means reducing the pain uh, effects uh, from the fentanyl. Um, the colonoscopy itself is not a painful procedure per se, but when somebody's going in with a camera and we're putting in air, that causes a lot of cramping. And so uh, we really um, discourage uh, anybody to have a colonoscopy uh, unsedated. It's really not really possible. I've had a couple uh, people who are adamant against it, and um, one of them we were able to finish the procedure without, uh, without any sedation, but uh, most people can't, can't tolerate the cramping because you know we're going in several feet with a camera, which is not comfortable. And so you're you're going in. Actually, I think it probably most people are probably uncomfortable with anybody, um, you know, performing the, at least the very beginning of that procedure. But so when we do the procedure, actually, you know, we we wait um, until the the patient is sedated, and so that they're you know quote unquote sleeping, um, and they're but they're breathing on their own. They're just in a sleep state. And so uh, I can tell you that 99% of the time, or maybe even 100% of the time, at least when I do them, uh, nobody really remembers the procedure. Uh, they, they wake up, and, and most people say, oh, doc, we're done. Uh, that was pretty simple. Uh, and even when I see them the day of the procedure, I, I ask them how the bowel preparation went. I say, are you clean so that we're going to start your colonoscopy? And I always reassure them. I say, by the way, that bowel prep that you just went through last night and this morning, that was the worst part of all of this. Uh, and they don't always believe me until after they say, Doc, you were right. Um, I don't even remember the procedure. Or did you really do it? And I show them the pictures of their colon. I say, yes, we really did. Here are your pictures. You have a healthy colon. And uh, people are very uh, happy about that. Well, I should say so, especially if they didn't feel much going into the um, the more unpleasant parts of well, It's not really invasive, but I guess on some level it kind of is. Um, so, well... Let's talk a little bit about the technology that you're using now that's different. So we, we covered the bowel prep and the changes that have been made with that, the unpleasantness of drinking an awful solution. But has, like, let's talk about the bells and whistles of medicine right now. Has, yes. has the camera so it gotten has smaller? Changed. Okay. Yes, it has definitely changed over recent decades. So initially, uh, 30, 40 years ago, when these scopes uh, started to be developed, uh, they were actually not optical, so they were not... Uh, right now, when we do our colonoscopies, and I'm going in with a camera, the image is actually projected onto a high-definition screen that I'm actually looking at, like a TV screen that's on the other side of the bed uh, as I'm doing the procedure. When they first started doing these, uh, these procedures uh, decades ago, uh, the doctor would actually have to look in through almost like a, like a telescope uh, or binocular into the actual lens and try to uh, do a good job of, of not missing any polyps. And certainly, as you can imagine, uh, you know, that's looking through a lens, uh, through a little telescope where it's an uncomfortable position. They didn't have the same optical um, 
optical technology, and it wasn't as magnified as well. Nowadays, when we're doing our uh, procedures, the the um, technology has changed uh, remarkably. We're doing them on HD televisions, uh, where the scopes themselves are also high definition. And the nice thing about that is that uh, with a high definition uh, colonoscope, the optics are much better so that when you're going through the colon, you're less likely to miss a small polyp or a flat polyp. Uh, you know, in our community as gastroenterologists, our, our biggest fear is missing uh, small, flat colon polyps in the right part of the colon. The right part of the colon meaning the upper part, the proximal part. And the reason why is that these polyps are the ones that tend to be more dangerous and can be missed and can lead to colorectal cancer as a quote, what we call interval cancer in between somebody's colonoscopy, meaning that somebody who presents with a colon cancer ended up having a colonoscopy five years ago and had a reportedly normal colonoscopy. And a lot of times it was because it was a small colon polyp that was flat that may have been missed uh, because of its optics. Uh, nowadays, though, with our better high-definition colonoscopy scopes, we're able to pick those up better. It's still an ongoing evolution of technology. And then, of course, we have additional um, additional techniques that some people are employing as well. There's some techniques called chromoendoscopy, where there's a type of um, liquid that's uh, blue-tinged color that helps delineate some of the folds and the polyps compared to the, the normal tissue. Um, and there's also something called narrowband imaging. Narrowband imaging is on all these high-definition scopes uh, where it takes away certain wavelengths of light to try to help um, delineate abnormal-appearing tissue uh, because a lot of times polyps that are dysplastic, meaning that they're abnormal or precancerous, they have a different pit pattern. Pit pattern meaning that the, the pattern of the lining of it when you look at it on the optics looks different. And a lot of times you can predict um, if they're going to be um, precancerous. Um, I, could, I, I should still say, though, there's still a lot of times where we remove these polyps and uh, you find something that you didn't always expect. So uh, that's why the pathology when we look at it under the microscope, our, our pathology colleagues are very uh, instrumental and important in this whole process. So I've seen, the, well, first of all, the flat polyps, we're calling them, or the flat patches, are, is that what a polyp starts out as before it gets really So there's different types of polyps, right. There's, there's, uh, there are sessile polyps and there are more, you know, pedunculated polyps. The pedunculated polyps are the types of polyps that tend to have more of a stalk, almost like a, like a mushroom with a head. And those are a little bit easier to resect in the sense that you can place a little snare around them, which is a little wire uh, that you put through the, you pass a little uh, device through the, uh, the uh, scope channel, and it comes out, and it's almost like a like a like a lasso where it goes around the polyp itself, and it strangulates the polyp. And, and once we're at the end of the stock and we're about to cut off the polyp, sometimes depending on the size of it, we actually use some uh, coagulation or heat to help destroy the base of the polyp uh, for a couple of reasons. One, that it destroys the tissue at the base of the polyp uh, to uh, make sure we're not missing any residual uh, precancerous tissue at the base of the polyp, but also because larger polyps tend to be more vascular. They tend to have more blood supply to the base of the uh, polyp, and so we want to make sure that there's uh, a lower chance of causing bleeding after the, the polypectomy after removing the polyp. You know, all of our procedures, when we do these procedures, any procedure has some small risks. So we always do uh, consent our patients, let them know about the risks of the procedure, 
which are very low, uh, but it, you know, we always like to have our patients informed as part of the informed uh, consent process so that in the event that something comes up, uh, they're aware and certainly we're able to uh, uh, treat it appropriately. So that's going to be the word of the day for everybody, pedunculated. <laughs> I'm certainly going to go Pedunc- home and flip that one by my family and see if they know yeah. what that means. Um, so, okay, so the... Um, the procedure that I remember seeing on television was actually able to, as the camera was going in, remove the polyps at the same time. Is that standard of care now? So usually um, different gastroenterologists have a little bit of a different technique. Uh, what I can tell you most of my colleagues and myself is uh, when we start the colonoscopy procedure, the uh, introduction phase is uh, I'm looking and inspecting the colon, uh, but really my goal uh, in the first part of the colonoscopy is to get uh, to the cecum. The cecum is the highest part of the colon, um, and there's an ileocecal valve, which connects the terminal ileum, which is the lowest part of the small intestines, to the cecum. And so my goal is to get to the cecum uh, because different people's colons uh, are are different. Some people have twisty colons where it's a little bit harder to get to the cecum, and some people have more straight colons. So during the uh, first part of the colonoscopy, I, I tend to focus more on getting to the highest point of where I need to go, and then on the withdrawal phase, meaning that when I'm coming back is when I'm taking my time, trying to look behind every fold, trying to look at a, as a 360 view to make sure that I'm not missing any polyps. That's where I'm really doing taking my time to make sure we're not missing polyps or to looking for other causes of, of why somebody might be having their symptoms. Um, that's the part where we paying more attention and, and withdrawing and, and suctioning out any residual fluid so we can take a good look. But yes, uh, sometimes if I do find a polyp on the way in and I think it's going to be a small polyp that it might be hard to see on the way out or that I might miss it, then I will remove it on the way in. But usually uh, I tend to remove the polyps on the way out once I've uh, done a good examination on the way out slowly. Are most cancers um, high up in the colon, way up by the cecum where you said you start your procedure, or are they, are they lower? So a Is lot of the polyps tend to be more in the left colon, which we call left meaning the lower part of the colon, uh, the, but the ones that we are more concerned about tend to be more the right-sided lesions, meaning the ones that are more proximal, higher up in the colon. Uh, as I mentioned, there are also uh, some newer types of polyps which have been coming out in the literature recently. They're called sessile serrated polyps or sessile serrated adenomas. And these tend to form in the right colon, and these have a little bit of a higher risk uh, of progression uh, to colorectal cancer. And, and that's why we're a little bit more uh, cautious and concerned about lesions uh, or polyps in the higher part of the colon. But certainly they can happen anywhere. Um, which is another reason why uh, I personally tend to recommend more colonoscopies as opposed to a sigmoidoscopy uh, as part of colon cancer screening. Uh, Sigmoidoscopy is basically like a partial colonoscopy, whether just doing the bottom lowest part of the colon. I I really don't uh, believe that that's appropriate because you could still miss um, polyps or, or cancers in the right in the higher part of the colon. What would be the reason that a physician would choose simply to do the sigmoid and not the full colonoscopy? Uh, sometimes a lot of it might depend on, uh, you know, the patient, their comorbidities, uh, and patient preference. Uh, some, some, sometimes patients might say, you know, I, I really don't want to take the bowel preparation. And so a sigmoidoscopy can be done um, via just having some enemas, a couple enemas in the morning, and they can, they can do it. Another one is the sedation. Uh, a flexible sigmoidoscopy can be done really unsedated. 
hmm. because we're just going in the just the lowest part of the of the colon itself. And so the preparation involved as well as um, the need for sedation uh, are, are two of the, the, the differences. Okay. Okay, good. Well, okay, so I think we've covered the procedure pretty well. What can somebody expect in the post-op? This part I think is fascinating, and I want to talk a little bit about this when they're in the recovery room. Yeah, so in the recovery room, so it, it, a lot of it depends on um, whether they had a conscious sedation uh, or a monitored anesthesia care. Uh, if they've had monitored anesthesia care, uh, then the, a lot of times the anesthesiologists uh, use a combination of medications, including something called propofol, which is a continuous uh, infusion uh, that crosses the blood-brain barrier very easily, and people can be um, sedated within a matter of a, a minute or two, and they can also wake up pretty rapidly as well. So uh, a lot of times uh, people who come wake up after monitored anesthesia care, uh, the first thing they'll tell you is like, oh, wow, that, that one hour felt like I had slept you know, several hours, they really feel like they've gotten uh, a lot more sleep uh, in that one hour. But generally, they'll be uh, in the in the first several minutes or so, they're awake and they're talking to you. But a lot of times, they don't end up remembering everything you tell them. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, when I go uh, in the post-operative recovery area and, and, and the patient is awake and I speak with them and they say, oh, yeah, thanks, doc. Uh, everything went well. I don't remember anything. Uh, it was a good experience. And I tell them, you know, you don't have any polyps. Things look good. Or you did have a polyp and we're going to send it to the lab. A lot of times uh, the nurse will then call me uh, later and say, uh, you know, this patient wants to speak with you. She hasn't, he or she hasn't spoken to you after the procedure. So a lot of times they're still uh, in that in that. Uh, period where they're still having a little bit of amnesia and, and forgetting some of the things we say. So uh, a lot of times um, I, I like to schedule uh, post-procedure follow-ups in the office uh, because if they do have, especially if they do have polyps or something that I'm concerned about, because a lot of times uh, it takes a few days for us to, to have the pathologist read it, and I like to take my time when they're awake and, and not feeling the effects of the anesthesia so we can discuss their findings and, and what we should do about them if there's something there. And I remember if they have oh, uh, conscious sedation, which is the phenylperset, they also tend to, to wake up. It takes a little bit longer for them because they're a little bit more groggy. Those medicines are not as quick on and off like the propofol that the anesthesiologists use, but it's a very similar type of experience. Um, we, do, um, we do have a policy at pretty much in all hospitals and uh, outpatient surgery center facilities that, that they cannot drive uh, after the procedure, especially, especially if they're getting uh, sedation, definitely not. Uh, because you know they're they, they're a little bit slower, their reflexes are slower, and they're really it's not a, it's dangerous for them uh, to be driving or operating machinery. So usually I tell my patients the day before, you know, you can go to work um, or go to school. Um, you'll just be on a clear liquid diet, uh, and then when you come home after work or school, and you might be grouchy, PM, <laughs> and you might be really grouchy. <laughs> exactly, you might be really grouchy. So I tell them don't schedule any important lunch meetings. Um, but yes, you can go to work. No job and interviews. Clear, <laughs> right, no job interviews, and you drink your clear liquids. Uh, you, you drink the prep in the evening, and then the day of the procedure, I tell them you're going to be groggy. You should probably just take the day off from work or home, um, or school, and I'm happy to provide you with a doctor's note. And then the next day after the procedure, they're, the anesthesia out of the system. They're, they're uh, back to normal. Well, and so I remember when my husband had his procedure done, they made sure he passed lots of gas before they also yes. cleared him to go. So what's that about? Yes, and that's a good point, too. Yes, um, a lot of times, you know, when we're doing the colonoscopy, we're putting in air and so people can get some cramping after. Nowadays, a lot of the uh, surgery centers as well as hospitals are using uh, CO2, carbon dioxide. 
which has actually been shown uh, to have uh, decreased um, distension, uh, which means uh, um, over uh, too much air in the colon. And so people tend to have less uh, pain or cramping post-procedure. They're able to pass the gas uh, easier. And the nice thing about CO2 uh, compared to using air uh, during the procedure is that it's also reabsorbed by the body. So even if you are as a gastroenterologist, even if you are leaving some air in the colon when you're coming out or CO2 in the, in the colon, it's reabsorbed by the body. So a lot of times, uh, by the time they wake up, they feel well, their abdomen it feels a lot softer, and they don't feel the need to pass as much gas. So it does make the post-procedure um, experience a lot better. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. Now, have we covered, and I'm not sure that we have, what some of the major risks of having the procedure are? And, and we probably should talk about that so we can, yes. um, you know, so we have not covered them. Yeah. Encourage people to get them and um, Absolutely. not worry so much Absolutely. about the Absolutely. And, and these, uh, a lot of these risks uh, depend on uh, the patient and their comorbidities and, you know, what other conditions they may have. Uh, and, and depending on which studies you look at, the, the, the risks or the, uh, or the percentages vary. Uh, I usually tell patients there are several risks involved, um, and I pretty much tell everybody the same spiel. Um, one is there's a small risk uh, of causing a tear in the colon called a perforation. Um, that can happen. Uh, it's very rare. It's less than one in a thousand. Um, and that can tend to happen if uh, somebody has a very large polyp and you're removing it at the base. And if at the base of that large polyp, if it, you go a little bit deeper than you intend, then there's a small risk of causing tear that way. Uh, sometimes just by going in with the camera itself, uh, if you're pushing a lot of a very twisty colon, there's a small risk that the pressure from the camera itself can, can um, cause a, a little small tear in the, in the line of the colon itself. So that's one risk I always uh, tell people. And then in terms of how to manage that, a lot of it depends on where the perforation is. Uh, where it's located, uh, and how big it is. Uh, if it's a very small perforation uh, that has happened during the uh, polypectomy when you're removing a polyp, a lot of times we as gastroenterologists can actually put clips. Uh, we, have the, we have a lot of different fun um, uh, devices that we can use as part of our uh, colonoscopy. So there's these little tiny clips which are a few millimeters in size, and you can almost basically place a few clips and stitch up uh, the area of where the tear was. Uh, so a lot of times, those depending on the size of it, they can be managed uh, with, with right there directly uh, via the colonoscopy. Uh, if they're very large uh, perforations, larger perforations, uh, then uh, the patient may actually need to have surgery. Uh, so uh, our colorectal surgery colleagues uh, sometimes need to be involved in, in, the, in the small chance that somebody has uh, a perforation during the procedure. Okay. All right. Uh, so go ahead. We're, we another have risk two minutes uh, left. associated with the. What's that? I said we have about two minutes left, if you can believe that. Okay. Sure, sure. I'll be quick. So another risk is a small risk of bleeding. A lot of times, uh, these bigger blood vessels uh, that are uh, intervening these colon polyps, they can cause some bleeding. Uh, but usually, we stop people's blood thinners. As I mentioned, when we do our polypectomies, we can use heat to destroy the blood vessel. So that's a small chance of having a, a polyp uh, bleed. Uh, sometimes it can happen a week later if the, if the site of where the polyp was removed ulcerates. That can cause a bleed, although those are less likely. Um, another small risk is a reaction to the anesthesia with their heart uh, or their breathing, so they can end up on a ventilator or have some heart arrhythmia. So that's another risk that's always mentioned to people. Uh, and then a small risk of missing an abnormality, like, for example, if they don't have a good prep or uh, if it was uh, difficult to, to see all the folds, that's a small risk as well. And then the last risk I, can, uh, I tell people is a small risk of infection. And the infection usually is if uh, somebody has, for example, 
a, a, a tear, and then there's a peritonitis where some of the uh, stool contents uh, go into the rest of the body. Those are all very unlikely, though. Uh, usually, uh, people do very well with these procedures. So any procedure has some small risk, but I can tell you, uh, for what we do with these colonoscopies, we have a lot of success, uh, and our rates of complications are very, very low. That's actually really great news, wonderful news. I have, I have one other question. Does the size or the diameter of your stool indicate colon health, whether it's super narrow or super wide? It, it, can, it can. You know, some people who just have constipation can have small pellet-like stools, uh, and it, that's just a function of their uh, colon not producing enough water and not getting enough fiber to bulk up the stools. But, you know, when we do do colon cancer screening, when somebody tells me to have a change in the caliber of their stool, if it's a thin stool, that is one of our alarm sign triggers to prompt a colonoscopy because we're not going to always chalk it up to just being constipated. Uh, that is something that definitely does uh, warrant investigation in, in, in somebody, yes. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So a thin, narrow stool is a risk factor, maybe? Yes. Okay. It would be a risk factor. Uh, rectal bleeding, you know, somebody who, who has bleeding when they go to the toilet could be hemorrhoids, uh, but I don't always chalk it up to hemorrhoids. I can certainly tell you examples of young people in their 30s or 40s who came to see me who told me they've had years of on and off bleeding. Their, their doctors told them, oh, well, maybe it's just uh, hemorrhoid bleeding. Don't worry about it. And then we found something that was serious, a colon cancer. Uh, fortunately, in a lot of those cases, we were able to remove them uh, with our colorectal surgery colleagues and, and basically cure them of their cancers. But it's something not to be taken lightly. Uh, such great information. I am remembering the time when Farrah Fawcett, who was always in great shape, um, so, you know, even people that think they're in fabulous shape, they don't need to do these screenings. Uh, she actually died of rectal cancer. And that was so eye-opening for me and so many other people that thought they were, you know, cheating death in a cancer such as that uh, just by being in good health. So the screenings are so important. I can't believe, uh, Dr. McConaughey, you packed so much into the hour that we have here. Any final thoughts that you want to share with us before we sign off here? Yes, my, my final thought would be that you know, a lot of times uh, colon cancer or colorectal cancer can be asymptomatic until it's too late. So I always tell people one of the biggest myths is that I don't have any symptoms, therefore I probably don't have anything serious. Uh, the best time to do uh, a colon cancer screening is when somebody doesn't have symptoms. That way we can hopefully find, if we do find something, it's usually in the earlier stages. We can treat it. We can remove polyps. If there is a cancer, we can deal with it and essentially cure people. So I always tell people do not wait until you develop symptoms because if somebody develops symptoms such as weight loss, changing the caliber of their stools, bleeding, a lot of these symptoms, uh, usually it ends up being that the cancer has advanced and, and uh, options for treatment become much more limited. So that would be my takeaway point. You know, get your colon cancer screening. Uh, tell your parents, tell your family members, your friends. It's, it's one of the most important things I do is colon cancer screening in somebody who's otherwise healthy. That's one of the most important things I do because I can really prevent somebody from ending up with a life-changing disease that could, that could cause uh, a lifetime of, uh, of illness. Oh, Dr. McConey, I'm so thankful that you came on during Colon Cancer Awareness Month to give us the lowdown and the ins and outs of colon cancer screening and the importance of early detection in this disease. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope uh, that all the listeners have learned a few things today and have uh, will, will be spreading the news uh, to their family and friends. Sounds good. And if anybody wants to reach you, is there a website they can go to learn more about uh, your practice? Absolutely. Uh, we can, you can look at the Lapeer Surgery Center website if you look up Lapeer Surgery Center. Uh, otherwise, I, I'm also uh, Mark McConney, and my website is LA Digestive Health 
LADigestivehealth.com. LADigestivehealth.com. Okay, Dr. McConney, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.